About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business from the cra for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and do, nothing, do not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They must press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus uh, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it would have been an incredible sight to see. It was a monster. It was 425 feet long. It was 250 feet wide. It was surrounded by 127 columns that were each six stories tall. It would have been an incredible sight. And the temple of, or the worship of Artemis was most likely the most widespread and most widely practiced religion or cult or system of worship in this point in history. They found temples of Artemis as far away as Spain. And the gospel comes to Ephesus, which is the very heart of the worship of Artemis. The gospel comes to town, and Demetrius the blacksmith is angry. He isn't selling as many uh, shrines of Artemis as he used to. His profit margin is minimizing because Christianity is bad for business. And he's frustrated. He's blaming this. He's blaming that. He's trying to get everything back in order the way he wants it. 
but he's frustrated because the gospel has messed up his system. Now, if you notice in this passage, there's no preaching. There's no apostles other than the mention of Paul. There's no miracles. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no conversions. So you kind of need to ask the question, why does Luke include this story? What does he want us to see and witness in this event? Now, I've never done this before, but I thought, why not? All week, uh, this passage reminded me of uh, a video I saw a few years ago that was one of those videos where you completely waste two and a half minutes of your life watching on YouTube. And then you think to yourself, you know, these people have a lot of time on their hands. And then you hit replay and watch it again. And then you send it to your friends. And then a couple years later, you decide to use it as an illustration in a, a sermon. And so if you got here this morning thinking, you know, I'd love to see a washing machine destroy itself, today's your lucky day. Go for it. in prayer. <laughs> I wanted you to actually watch it because given the topic of what I think why Luke has this in the passage, I wanted a visual to be in your mind. 
because I think that represents what Luke is trying to get at in this passage. It's what he wants you to see. Just like Demetrius, your problem is not out there. Your problem is not this situation, this circumstance, or this situation, or this consequence, or this person. Your biggest problem is that something in your heart is deeply off balance, and you have no idea the damage that it's doing to the rest of your life. It would challenge us in this passage to recognize that we often minimize sin to being something that is just our own little thing and doesn't affect others. We minimize it and think it's relegated to certain portions of our life and the simple ways that we want to define it. And this passage would invite us to recognize that that is an image of what sin actually does in our life and that we would be moved to a deeper understanding of sin. Why? So that we might have a deeper experience of Christ. So this morning, my goal is that we would have a deeper understanding of the reality of sin and how it works and what happens when the gospel comes to town. And I want us to have that deeper understanding of sin by just starting off considering two things. What is sin like and how does sin operate? So what is sin like and how does it operate? So first, what is sin like? Well, what is the first description of sin in the Bible? And I don't mean the fall where we learn of the consequences of sin. I mean the actual first description of sin itself. Well, it's just after that. In Genesis 4, whenever God is talking to Cain, and God is the first one to describe sin. Cain is upset. He's frustrated because the system that he has gone about life to receive blessing and goodness isn't working. And God comes to Cain and says, Cain, you need to be careful because sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. If you translate that literally, God says, Cain, sin is a croucher that wants to devour you. So if you consider that, God is describing sin as a predator waiting for the right moment. Do you think of sin that way? Do you define and consider that reality in your life that that kind of force is at work? We often define sin simply as uh, you know, I kind of have this thing I do that I know that's wrong. And one of the worst definitions, I just absolutely abhor. Like last week, it was Ryan's God thing. This week, for me, it's uh, whenever we define sin as missing the mark. It's like we're just off a little bit. That's not how God describes sin. And the significance of recognizing this predatorial reality of sin is that it essentially is describing sin as having its own consciousness. It's a croucher. It's patient. It's waiting, it's calculating, it's malevolent in how it comes after you. It's a predator that waits for the right moment, which means this. If you want to try and understand the sin in your life, you actually have to search for it. To find real problems, you have to look for it. Why? Because predators hide. Predators hide just like, or sin hides just like a predator. It hides in the tall grass of life, which means that if you're not someone that really wants to be constantly mindful that sin is at work in your life and be willing to face that it's there or try and kind of take the, the top off and see what lies beneath the surface, then what happens? You're always just going to kind of do a quick passing glance at life and you'll say, oh, I don't see anything. I guess everything's okay. And yet sin hides, which means that in the end, if you live life that way, then you don't actually know what's ruling over you. You don't actually know where it sinks its teeth into you. And you don't actually know the damage that it's doing. 
Sin is a predator that's waiting to strike. Now, when it does, how does it operate? How does sin operate in your life whenever it entrenches itself? Well, to see how that works, we don't have to go much further than Genesis 4. We can look in Genesis chapter 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. It gives us a picture of how sin establishes and entrenches itself in our lives and the way that it operates by a system. It establishes a support system in your life. And as, we, as I tell the story just briefly of the Tower of Babel, it probably sounds very similar to our passage this morning. So here you have the Tower of Babel. You have the people that set out to build for themselves a great, magnificent tower, a temple that reaches to the heavens. And their goal in building this tower is essentially their grasp at immortality, to make a name for themselves. Where God offered glory, they will now seek that glory on their own terms without God by building this place of worship. But it's not just the tower. It's also surrounded by a city that they build to support the construction work of this tower. And then it goes further and talks about the people that fill it, that they were all one. They were all united in this endeavor. Ephesus does not sound that much different, does it? It's surely just Babel 2.0. And I want you to see this system that sin produces in humanity at Babel in you, in Demetrius, is that it produces a system with multiple layers. And you see these layers in this story and how sin operates, because what do we see? We see at the center there's a place of worship. It's surrounded by a city to offer it resources, and it's filled with the people that are united in purpose, which means that when sin establishes itself in your life, it's going to build that system. It's going to build three things. It's going to build idolatry, an economy, and a sociology by which you navigate life. It's going to build a place of worship. It's going to invest your resources, and it's going to determine your relationships. So if we put these things together, what does it look like? Well, sin comes into your life, and it waits for the right moment. It knows your weakness. It knows your frailty. It knows where you struggle. It knows your desires. It knows your deficiencies. And it says, oh, you want comfort? Try this. Oh, you want satisfaction? Try this. Oh, you're lonely? Try this. Oh, you want meaning and purpose? Try this. And it comes to you at the right time and offers you something to worship, which simply means it offers you something to ascribe the most worth, the most value, something that's the most important in your life, something you have to have, something you can't live without. And once it does, what happens? There's an economy that begins to build, that you invest resources into having it. And there's a sociology because it begins to determine how you navigate relationships to get what you want. Sin is not a simple thing. It's calculating. It's systemic. And its effect is far more than just a little action that I do that I know that's wrong from time to time. And perhaps the easiest way to see this system that sin creates is to consider the life of a drug addict. They are addicted to the way a drug makes them feel, the escape that it, may, that it allows them to experience. And as they 
are more and more consumed by that desire, what happens? Well, they begin to develop an economy that determines their resources where they begin to give everything they have to make sure they get it. They sell their possessions, they sell themselves, they sell their family out. Everything is devoted to getting the drugs. And then there's what? A sociology, and their sociology is simple. You avoid people that would try and get in the way and be a threat of you having those drugs, and you only surround yourself with people that help you get it. So in the end, sin's desire is simply to get you to say in your heart, I want that more than anything else. I will give anything I have to to have it, and I don't want anybody to stand in my way. Do you see the power of sin? Do you see the way that the Bible paints it as being something that is far more systemic in your life? It touches far more things than we might think that it does. How it throws your heart off balance by convincing you that something is worth more than it actually is. And so you have to have it. You need it. You feel like it's good for you. It sells you an idol. And then whenever you buy into that lie, it determines how you use your resources, how you go about relationships. It establishes a system by which you navigate life. But since it's sin building a system, you have to recognize that it only is going to destroy. It only consumes. It only enslaves. But the greatest trick of sin is that when the washing machine of life is falling apart and the system doesn't work, you think to yourself, everything is just fine. And as we consider the importance of why we need to understand what sin is like and how it operates is because it helps us realize how Jesus goes about his ministry. It helps us realize what Jesus does whenever he enters into, when he comes to town when he steps into your life. In the Gospels, when Jesus shows up, love itself, God in the flesh, grace and mercy and love incarnate, what do we see him do? Most of the time, he picks a fight. Constantly. He picks a fight. What do we see with a few stories? Consider Nicodemus. Jesus says to him, you think you're a great teacher of Israel, and you don't actually know anything. You're not who you think you are. To the Pharisees, he says, you think you're righteous and you have God's favor? You're whitewashed tombs. Your father's the devil. You're murderers. And you devour widows' houses. To the woman at the well, he says to her, basically, you want to change the subject and talk about theology whenever I actually want to talk about the fact that you take identity and the affection of men and that your greatest fear is that you would sleep in bed alone. And where we have Peter. Peter, you think that you pride yourself on your devotion to me and your loyalty and the pride of life that you are independent and self-sufficient, and yet this very night you will deny me three times. You are not what you think you are. For Demetrius, it's the same exact thing. It's no different. The gospel shows up and picks a fight and exposes what he really values and shows that his system doesn't work. And at the heart of his system is a love of money and greed. And gospel comes into life. Bottom line is affected. He's angry. And the economy of his life isn't working out because he's like, I've invested all of these things into making this work, and it's not. I'm not getting the return on my investment that I want. So then he goes to others and he stirs them up and gets them angry to support this system that he wants to get back on track and get everybody 
getting this system working again. And yet, in verse 32, ironically, it says that everyone was angry, but nobody was on the same page. Like, nobody really knew why they were angry. It's like, yeah, we're really angry. About what? Like, what are we, what are we really here for? As they chant, great is Artemis. And all this unrest and anger, and yet they were confused because nobody actually understood the real problem. Nobody understood what was really going on. Demetrius sets the world around him in a riot, but it doesn't work because he doesn't recognize that the real riot is in his heart. And when Jesus shows up in these ways, if you want him to show up in your life, why would he go about your life any differently? Because if you want Jesus to come into your life, he doesn't want to show you the reality of sin, which means he's going to attack what you take identity in, what you want more than anything, what you desire above all else, what you put your hope and your trust in. He goes right to the place in your heart where sin is throwing everything off balance. And he invites you into a new system, one that works. So if Jesus showed up this morning and sat down with you, what would he want to talk about? I think we all know that he wouldn't sit down and say, you know, I think you're doing okay. Talk about the Cowboys, you know? I think we know exactly some of the things he'd probably begin to point his finger at. We know, and that's sometimes why we don't want to face our sin, is because we know the consequences are more than we really want to face, more than we really want to bear, more than we want to consider. And we want to think that while things are falling apart, everything is just fine. And so what system would he want to expose? What idol of the heart would he point out? And I think, honestly, as many people as there are in the room, it's that many different idols. We all live by certain systems. It's just the way that sin works. And I couldn't possibly give, have enough time to go, like, all the, you know, just, the examples are endless. But maybe we just considered a couple of the systems that perhaps we might live by and the damage that it does. Maybe for you, or for some of us, your heart is out of balance because you worship the idol of success. Success is the most important thing. You've decided that uh, it's to be valued above all else, and so you invest the majority of your time and your energy and resources into obtaining it. And so the economy of your life is about making decisions about whether or not it will help you obtain it. And so maybe things that or good things start to become inconvenient threats. Time with family, taking the night off, taking a vacation become threats because it's pulling you away from your worship. And it affects your marriage. Because when your spouse comes to you and says, I think you need to stop working so much to spend time with family, you say no. And you get angry. Don't disrupt my system. And does that idol not affect our children? Do we not take what we value and pass it down where we say if, idol, if the idol of success, if success is the most important thing, we pass that down to our kids as the most important thing. And we raise them with that same value system. And so we can easily just be a job review performance board that is raising our children instead of a parent. And their heart goes unattended. And you also might have somebody that struggles with money and the idol of materialism. You believe that you are what you own, you are what you live in, you are what you drive, you are what you wear. And so you overspend to always feel that satisfaction of having something new. You overspend so that you can keep a certain level of status. You overspend to give your children a lifestyle that you never had. 
but you're always anxious and your heart is out of whack because you know that you're always running life in the red and you're just that close away from bankruptcy or calamity. And then your spouse comes and it boils over into your marriage because your spouse says, please stop spending so much. We're not in a safe place. And you blow up and we say, do not interrupt my system. And even further than that, think about extended families, which I hear a lot of. The dysfunctional systems that we have in our extended families with our parents and our siblings, even as adults. For how many of us are the holidays just a life-giving time? I'd say probably not that many. Why? Because there's a system that is at work. Maybe you have a parent that everyone in the family knows you have to walk on eggshells around because the idol in their heart is to have the affection of everyone, to be the one who's validated, that everyone has to, make, has to tend to them and make them the center of their life. And so you know that because of that, they are always getting upset. The smallest wrongs become these massive issues in the family. And anything that all your actions are perceived in a certain way as being malevolent, you step, step on their toe and it feels like you stabbed them in the heart. And so everyone lives in fear of what? Their anger. Everyone lives in fear of their anger, and so all the resources of family go into keeping that person happy. And then, whenever they're upset, it's like even if you didn't do anything, you apologize all the time, even if it's something you didn't do. And we can just as easily enable the idolatry and systems of others that actually destroy relationships because we are afraid of disrupting the system. Maybe the mantra of your family is just simply keep the peace at all cost. We don't deal with issues. We just keep the peace. But really, there is really not any peace whatsoever. There's none. And the holidays are really just everybody existing to feed the idolatry of another. We live in all sorts of systems, and the list goes on and on. Maybe it's lust, and it deadens your heart to your spouse and children, and you just become an emotional zombie. Maybe your, your system is about affection. You have to have affection, and so you're destroying your marriage because you put an insurmountable weight on your spouse to satisfy your insatiable appetite for love. Or maybe it's simply your reputation, that image you project, so you don't have any real community because transparency is so threatening, and you don't want people to see who you really are. For each of us, it's completely different, and yet it's all the same. And I honestly wish I could end this sermon with like a couple of bullet points to say, here's a few points of application, and everything is fixed. But that's just not how it works. Only Jesus can fix it. And that's certainly not how this passage works either. Demetrius is simply left with the opportunity to recognize the idol of his heart. And that his systems do not work. Perhaps that's where Luke would leave you and us as well to consider what are the idols of my heart? What is the system by which I live that I know doesn't work? And so I would challenge you maybe to be willing to spend a season where you do want to understand what those idols are. You do want to understand the system that's at work in your life, the way things are that you're tired of, but you don't really know what the problem is. The same old, same old that you want something more out of. 
And if you do want to go down that, that road and that track where you do want to see those things, then perhaps this passage gives us that first step and it leaves us with the question. What in your life makes you angry and feel threatened if it were taken away? What's the must-have? And in that, there's that desire that maybe things could be different. Is that not the promise of the gospel, that your life could be run by a different system and you can be tired of the way that your marriage has been going, tired of the way that your relationship with your kids is going, tired of the way that you relate with others and your lack of community. And Jesus comes in and he says, there's a different way. There's a different system to to, to rule your life. There's a different thing to worship that actually gives you what you want. And maybe in that willingness, 2018 might be a year in which your marriage turns around. It might be a year in which your relationship with your kids becomes something new and precious and valuable in new ways. Maybe it's a way you finally, for the first time in your life, are willing to have a true friend. Maybe this upcoming school year could be different. Maybe the holidays don't have to be the way they've always been. And it's not coming from all these circumstances being changed. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to change your heart. He wants to come in and give you that confidence and set everything right because he is at the center. But we only get to that place if we're willing to see what is in Jesus' place instead. And we can only fix it if we're willing to go to him because he's the only one that really knows the problem. He's the only one that can reveal it to you. And he's the only one that knows how to pick a fight with it. But it's not the fight of a bully. It's the fight of a friend. It's the fight of a lover, a healer, a savior, and your only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we forgive us for the ways that we minimize the sin in our lives. Might we feel the weight and reality of sin, and might we, might we feel the off-balancedness of our lives this morning so that it might draw us to you. Forgive us for the ways that we minimize our sin and forgive us for the ways that we might be aware of it and yet can be so willing to live with it. I ask that you would would come into all of our lives and that we would be willing to have you disrupt that system that we're living by and recognize that you offer something better. You offer us life, hope, joy, and peace. And we have never been able to find that anywhere else. We ask that you would be our only hope in life and in death. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody said, Amen.